From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey everybody, it's Book Circle Online. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Dinah Lenny, author of The Object Parade. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you have a long list of titles, from uh. author to actress, teacher, mother. How do you describe yourself when people ask? Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> what a good question. Well, you know, I think I, if people ask me what I do, yes. I usually say that I teach. Okay. Um, but but then I do feel I have to qualify. So then because I, um, I'm sort of afraid to own anything um, altogether, I'll say that I, I'm a teacher who scribbles or I'm a teacher who um, occasionally acts. A recovering actor. A recover. I'm definitely, <laughs> you know, there's no exit with the acting of thing. Course. So I'm, a, I, I'm still an actor. But although there's also a little bit of pride in it, you know, I mean, I don't want people to think I quit. No, you know? of course. But I, I, I definitely get confused when I have to sort of present myself, which I think is part of... Um, the whole thing of developing a persona on the page, particularly with a book like this one. Oh, so you, you did you have trouble like trying to s- like what side of yourself you'd present? No, no, I don't. I wouldn't say that I had trouble, um, but I definitely sort of felt things emerging. It was it was really. I mean, by you know, by the end, it felt that it had been an opportunity to say, "I've played many roles, and yeah. they're all important to me." Well, I thought that was so interesting that you were comparing yourself to Shirley, your character from ER, and you said she didn't know herself, and I don't know that I do either. Because I guess reading it, I yeah. felt like you should, did. Yeah, that's really, yeah, I mean, I think it's true that all those years that I played Shirley, because it was, because Shirley was really a plot device, yeah. and because the producers never wanted her to be more than a plot device, um, we didn't find out very much about her. Right. So I, I only had a few details and it was up to me. Um, it would have been up to a, a very good actor and a very committed actor to fill in the rest. But I knew I was a plot device. And so by the end of that run, I was sort of coming in to move the gurneys and say my lines and get out of the way. You know, that's right. the Spencer Tracy thing of, you know, sort of say your lines and get out of the way of the furniture or whatever it is. So um, I didn't, I, what I discovered was that 15 years later, there was a blur, you know, who was Shirley? Was she, was she just Dinah or, you know, was she their creation or mine? Oh, you know, interesting. At the end. That's a long time to play a plot device. It's a very her. long time. It's a very long time. And, and, you know, I mean, television acting is seductive because, um, it, it's money, you know. It's lucrative. Um, there's a very successful it, show. It, it's a very, it was a very successful show, and there are wonderful actors on the show. There was always the possibility. I mean, you cannot be uh, in the arts and not have a sort of very deep sense of faith and hope. Right. And you know, there was always the chance. Right till the end, right up till the end, there was always the chance in my mind, completely misguided, that somebody was going to decide. That, you know, it was worth finding out who Shirley was. Right. Like in the last, the finale. All of a sudden, you know, I'm going to pull a a a tootsie and, you know, kind of take out my own scalpel and I'm going to do the operation now. But, you know, there was that. There was, there was waiting to be, and that's a, you know, that's a problem in this town. There was waiting to be discovered on that show. There was waiting for it to happen. Oh. You know, on that show. And that was, you know, that was too, that it was a wonderful opportunity and it was also disappointing. Oh. You know, 
Yeah. And during the course of the show and living in New York, were you always writing during that time? I was always a writer. And I think as a, I mean, a scribbler, I should say. Sure. You know, I was always somebody that was sort of scribbling. And I think I probably was always a kind of a first person narrative essayist too. Although, you know, anybody who wants to write starts out wanting to write fiction because we read stories when we're little kids and we want to make up stories, right? Yeah. But um, anyway, I, I, I wrote off and on, but I certainly didn't think about writing professionally until the acting sort of began to be less important and less successful for me. You know, oh, really? I'd had a couple of kids. Um, I wasn't booking as many jobs. I wasn't as happy to do equity waiver theater. Um, you know, I, I wanted it to be important and And did worthy. you go into it to transition careers or just to do something because you enjoyed it? To the writing. Well, that's so funny because, you know, of course I said to my parents, so um, the acting thing isn't working out. You know, I mean, by this time I was a middle-aged woman, but the acting thing isn't working out, so I think I'm going to be a writer now. And it's like, oh, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thrilling. But, you know, I, I think I went into it because I couldn't, you know, there was a profound sense that this is what I needed to do. That, you know, I was, I hate the word artist, but that I had that kind of, I mean, I don't want to, I had that sort of temperament and that sensibility that I was going to have to make my living in in a way that was somehow connected with of narrative and the arts. And, you know, so I started writing um, because I was, I didn't have enough to do on stage and on screen. I was do, playing Shirling and it wasn't, it wasn't compelling enough. So I started to write and I was writing stories. And then um, my father was killed. And, and when that happened, suddenly I was writing nonfiction and finding that it, that it was really um, where I had the most control. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I don't want to uh, like trivialize the book by saying it's another actor writing mm. about their lives because um, it's very, it's, it's beautifully written. Thank you. I could, like, there was a really like skill and artistry beyond just like entertaining stories. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. I'm really glad that you think so. I, I, I wanted it to be, um, you mean, I, that's the goal is that you want to make something beautiful and you want to make something that lasts and something that's going to affect people. Of course. You know, and I wasn't in a position to write. I mean, certainly, you know, I'm not someone who's going to write a celebrity memoir, right? <laughs> so, so it had to have its value, um, uh, separate from my other life. Yes. And I would assume that as an actor who, you know, you can't capture acting like mm, in your hand. It yeah. must be nice to have like something tangible to hold. It is. It's really, it's really nice. Um, it's funny. I have a friend who's a playwright and so her, her play lives, you know, it, it's there's certainly a, a, a screen, a script, you know, yeah. she has that, but, um, you know, she, it lives in performance. And that's really true that, you know, performances are fleeting. I mean, yeah. we, we preserve more and more, don't we, for YouTube and for, uh, you know, we have archives. But performance is something that you can't hold. And yes, it's wonderful to have the book. And it's wonderful to have the book as um, evidence that I was an actor. You ah. know? Do you know, I mean, I write yeah. about acting a lot in the book, sort of inadvertently. And, and I think. That's a massive part of your life. Yeah. And to, that's what I meant about sort of discovering who you are. I certainly didn't set out to write a book about acting by, by any means. But, um, there are a number of essays in which it's clear that, you know, that, that I was doing the right thing at the right time. It meant something to me. Of course. You know? And how did you decide on 
using objects as like the vehicle to write about your life? So, you know, objects are, you're always looking for prompts in, um, when you teach writing, you're always oh. looking for ways to get people going. And it's, it's much, Oh, you're sorry. So you're saying from the teacher's perspective. From the teacher's point okay. of view. From the teacher's point of view, you're always looking for things. What, what you want to do is, you know, people want to write about their joy or their angst or their disappointment or their frustration or whatever terrible thing or wonderful thing they want to write about. Sure. But if you write about that stuff dead on, it's sort of boring and on the nose and it doesn't surprise anybody, least of all the writer. Oh. So I would say to my students, you know, write about something that's important to you. Write about the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning. Write about and, and let that take them wherever they might go. When I was doing those prompts with them, I was reminded of this parade that my son was in when he was a little boy. Right. And it was the object parade. And that was their name for it. And that was their name for it. Great. And the kids, you know, the kids picked an object and it was this, you know, crunchy granola fabulous elementary school where they had an integrated curriculum and the children were supposed to build the world in order to understand it it's called constructivist theory amazing right so jake uh, was in this group of kids and they had to pick an object and they used it for science and they studied it for math and they did something with it sort of for you know social studies history that kind of what do they call that now i don't know but and then they wrote poems and prose for language arts and then they built it out of paper mache and he did this all about the walkie-talkie and he did it all about a walkie-talkie he picked a walkie-talkie and they built it and then they walked in the parade and so i thought well if he's supposed to understand the world better now because or walkie-talkies better because he studied it and then built it and then walked then maybe if i do that with my own life with objects i will understand better who i am and why i'm here you know and do you feel like that now i think i think well you know, whoever understands, you know, who they are and why they're here. But but to this point, I feel like this book is a really um, accurate portrayal of my life. I you would, know? I, granted, I, <laughs> I don't know you that well, but I would agree with that. It didn't feel like you were trying to fake something or no. present like a false side. No, and I, because I didn't, I think that's also key to this kind of writing. I didn't know where it was going. You know, I really, it wasn't like I knew what the end was. So you didn't make a list of objects and say, and now I'll write about the earrings. Not at all. In fact, I wrote about, you know, twice again, a third again as many objects that didn't make it into the book. It was a question of use, you know, these prompts and um, using the objects to find the stories that were important to me and then ordering the stories in a way that told the bigger story, the bigger arc. And I know that it's more than just a love story to like the material objects that matter <laughs> exactly <laughs> of she's course so shallow. she's so shallow that woman writing yeah. about things i know it no and i know it's more than that but i'm kind of curious about like the changing currency of things did do they feel sort of less important to hold on to now that you've got their like their importance recorded in oh, writing jeff that is such a good question i think yeah i do think so I think that I think things I think, you know, it's sort of like your stories and your memories, too. Yeah. Once you are once you own them, once you're able to articulate them and you've shaped them and you've mined them for why why they're important to you, it is easier to relax in yeah. that. Right. And I think that's true. Uh, it's not that I'm I'm not throwing anything out that that, you know, it's not like I'm going to get rid of now. Now, now that I've written about my grandfather Steinway, I think I'll sell it. Right. You Who know, wants I don't, it? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, we're having a yard sale. Um, 
it's not that I, it's not that I uh, want to let this stuff go, but yes, there is a sense of, okay, I know why it's important and I know why I'm attached to it. And when it is that thing of, of, um, attachment taking on a different perspective. I love the chapters too about the piano. I think it's, of course, I think it's every like parents unspoken obligation to get their parents, the kids to practice. Yeah, so true. (laughs) And that was mine. (laughs) So yeah, no, I know. And I, you know, I don't know how my daughter feels about that chapter. I'm, I, I feel it's such a Valentine to her. Of course. I, I, you do too? Yes. Yeah. I, I hope she's listening. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, it was, it was, and it was interesting too to see that there were a couple of objects that needed more treatment because there was another story. So there was, there's piano and then there's piano too. Right. You know, because. And, and then the metronome. And the met, and there's the metronome and right. And they're all around the piano. Yeah. I yeah. kept creeping back up. Yeah. I just, I know that it was a, a, like another classic American battle in my family too, <laughs> to get me to practice. To practice piano. <laughs> Did you? Um, you know what? They would always give me like the, you will regret this in your future. And that kind of scared me. And, and how do you feel about it now? Are you glad you practiced? I am. Good. Um, I played for nine years. Wow. You stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. But I feel bad now because I moved to Los Angeles and I don't have a piano. So, but you, but it is the kind of thing that you can always pick up and you yeah. do listen to music differently because you practice, of course. you know, and you, I mean, you know, stuff, you know, this other language. And I think it's good from an early age to be learning how to do something new. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the like code to the back of our piano teacher's door was 415. And I would never remember, but she was like, it's tax day. And I was like, okay, but what is a tax day? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> like telling a 12 year old about taxes. That's a classic uh, situation where something means something to somebody else and nothing to of you. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I were going to do, uh, there's not going to be another object parade, but the Part piano two. continues to be important. You know, if I were going to write the next essay would be about how I've gone back to the piano. You know, oh, yeah. in a very limited and primitive way, but and you have well, you know, I sit down and I play that piano now, and I, um, with some idea that that it is important to to um, not just learn things but relearn them. Okay. You know, so yeah. Wow. Do you think that your kids will eventually inherit it and have like the same meaning? You know, it. I think my daughter loves the piano. She loves that piano. I, I think she does anyway. Um, and I and both kids are very musical. My my son is in college now, and he has a band, and it's important to him. Um, I think you know. I think it's there's no question that because music was important to us and it was in the house, it in some way informed who they are. Yeah. At least I like to think that, and <laughs> I don't course. want anyone else to tell me otherwise. No, 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 definitely. <laughs> what was the like most exciting chapter to write? Like what object to visit? So the chat, they, you know, they were fun to write for different reasons. Um, but the most, so the most, one of the things that was interesting was to write uh, the ones there, are, there are the ones that took endless amounts of time and work to get right. Oh, I see. Um, like Dinah's room was one of those that just really, literally, I wrote that essay for years before I understood what I was writing about. Oh, really? Uh, whereas there are others that I kind of, you know, burped. Sure. So, um, instructions, the very last piece of the, of the, the, the one before the epilogue yes. was exciting because it came out in a rush sort of whole hog, you know, I didn't have to think very hard about it, but I'd say the most in the, in a way, the most rewarding chapter to write and the hardest was the epilogue itself because it, 
you know, that was when I realized, you know, without giving anything away, really, what the book was about, you know, and and it was it was fun to go back and realize what I realized in the epilogue is that I could have written about any number of objects. Sure. And I would have told the same story, which is the story of uh, having having a plan, you know, a reason, you know, to come to Los Angeles and um, and how, you know, life interrupts your plans. Of course. And how did you make those cuts of the other objects that you wrote about? Well, I made a lot of the cuts myself. Just, there were essays that just didn't work. You know, you, oh, okay. you, you write, I mean, you write a lot of junk for everything that you get that's readable. Of course. You know, so there was that. Uh, but I also had a brilliant editor, uh, a guy named Dan Smetanka, and he's at Counterpoint Press. And when I did finally have that manuscript in shape, you know, when I, when I thought I had a book, um, it was Dan who sort of went in with me and helped me to shape it. And he was the one, you know, I had, I perhaps had a more meandering book in mind. And it was Dan who said, you have a concept here and you have to adhere to it. And the other really wonderful thing he said to me when I was trying to sort of get the prologue together, he said, you wouldn't sit people down to a beautiful meal without silverware. So you have to guide us as to how we're going to read this oh, wow. book. You have to give us the equipment to be able to read it. That's great advice. It was fantastic. He oh, was, I love yeah. that. Yeah, he was great. Really I also great. loved the advice that you were given. I think you wrote about the prologue. Um, don't cry over things that can't cry about you. Yeah. Yes, it's true. A friend of mine said that to me once. <laughs> Would she be offended about a, a book about objects? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because no. I do have so many friends who are Buddhists and, you know, um, and preach mindfulness. And I'm, you know, I sort of present as a as not a very mindful person in this book. But that's, you know, this is my way of being mindful. No, I, I disagree with that. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good, good, good. I love the review that called it a... Uh, Pensive perusal. I know. I, I know. Great. Don't you love that when people say things about you that hadn't occurred to you? You're like a pensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I thought the concept was great. I thought it was um, not cheesy. And I like that you didn't stick to just like physical objects that you can hold. Like Dina's room. Or, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dina's room. Yeah. Dina's room. Um, yeah. I, I I liked having that bit of leeway too. That there are even... You know, there are objects uh, that are invented. You know, the letter to dad is an invented object. And yes. the instructions are, I mean, those are imaginary objects. Yeah. You was know. it interesting to, like, revisit your father after the other book? Or is that kind of ongoing? Well, I think, you know, uh, when, I w when I wrote the other book, um, a wonderful writer of memoir said something very smart to me. She said it actually to a, a group of people. She, we were in a on a panel about trauma in the memoir and her name is Terry Jentz um, and she said there's no such thing as recovery there's only integration which I think is really true you know we talk a lot about healing and recovery I think what we what we want to do with the stuff that happens in you know to us in our lives is is make it part of who we are not abandon it so sure. in the sense um, when you say is this ongoing uh, you know I, I miss my father and I um I loved him and what would it and I what would it say about either one of us if I didn't continue to think about him? Of course I do, but I'm not in enormous pain about that. Um so the the problem with this book was that I hadn't figured out a way to put him in it. 
And so I, because I, because I come from a, a, you know, my parents were divorced. This was a book about my mother and my stepfather who really raised me and is my dad. Um, and about my kids and my husband. And I hadn't found a way to bring this trauma in, but to not bring it in was as if to say it hadn't happened. Right. So I had to find a way to put him in there. I, and it would be too as the odd as the reader. Your right. first book was him. Right. And the second one is about your family, but nothing. Right. And where is he? Where is the, what happened? Why this is she is ignoring a, him? And here's yeah. this seminal event, this important thing that happened to her, and there's no reference to it. It really had to be in here. Yeah. But it was a, just a question. And so that was an example of, you know, trying to find an object that would let me in to him. And so I looked at his cufflinks and I tried to write about them, but I... You know, I could, I mean, maybe I would have found that essay. I don't know. Sure. I have a bunch of his shirts and, and my daughter has one of his sweaters and, um, we have photographs of him, but somehow I wasn't, I wasn't finding my way in. And then, and then I decided to write him a letter. Wow. And so you were approaching these stories, starting with the story as well as starting with like with an object, like both inspirations? You know, different. It was different for different stories. Sometimes it was the story that came first and then discovering that there was an object at the heart of it. And then other times, um, many, many times the object is a prompt and I describe the object before I do anything else. Of course. Um, Sometimes the piece started with an object and I got sidetracked and it became another piece. And when it was time to put the book together, I went back to the object. So for instance, with Purple Scarf, um, that piece began with knitting. And originally it started with knitting. But then I rewrote the piece because I was writing about acting and I was writing about playing this role, the role of Gertrude in, in Hamlet. And then when it was time to put the book together, I thought, oh, well, this is about the Purple Scarf. I'll just put that up in the lead again. Do you know? So it as was, opposed to knitting, it, well, or, the, the knitting, yes, knitting. But oh. but in the original, what happened was that I had I had almost abandoned the knitting. So when I was putting the book together, I thought, okay, I need to make the purple scarf a little more prominent oh, because it's an object parade. Oh, I see. You know, so originally I started writing because I was knitting in rehearsals and compelled by that. And then I abandoned that because I wanted to tell the story of playing this role and rehearsing with friends mm-hmm. and, you know, how I feel, how I felt about being an actor. And then when it was time to put the book together, I thought, okay, the purple scarf needs a bigger part. So it was almost like I was rewriting for the, for the purple scarf. Sure. And I know you said you have not like abandoned acting altogether. Are you still acting at all? Um, you know, the last thing I did, I played a nun on Sons of Anarchy a couple of <laughs> years ago. I played an Irish nun from Belfast. It was very exciting and fun. And I had this great scene with Katie Segal and she was lovely and generous. Um, I haven't, I haven't done anything since then. You know, what I would really love is at some point, I would love to do a play again. I'm not, I'm not dying to do television. Um, but I would love to do Chekhov and I would love to do Shaw and Shakespeare, you know, at some point. Sure. But, um, but I must say the writing has taken care of my, my need to, um, express my intensity, which yeah. I think is what acting is all about. Yeah. You know? And was Sandy Meisner like the big, uh, I don't want to use the word 
the big acting teacher. Well, you <laughs> I was know, there were like deity, but I let's yeah. Well, he bring was, you know, he was a guru. Let's yeah. say he was a guru. Was he um, at that level when you were studying with him? Oh yeah, well, he was way. You know, he by oh, that really? time he was an icon. By the time wow. I met Sandy, um, and I, you know, had. I had Sandy in class for one year, by which time he was an old man, um, and and uh, had he'd had his voice box removed because he was such a heavy smoker. So he when he when he taught class, he had an amplifier with him wow. and a microphone, and he would talk to us like like that. Really? You know? Yeah. And, I've never heard that before. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he lost his the whole apparatus to cancer. So, but he was, yeah, he was already a guru. Um, you know, the likes of, I mean, it was Sandy Meisner and Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler. Yeah. These were the big acting teachers. That was a big time to be in New York studying. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. I was sort of on the tail end of it, but yes, it was very exciting. I was kind of thinking, I know the, uh, well, I mean, the book was a lot about your acting, about the kind of like theatricalized nature of the writing process uh-huh. and how it's uh-huh. a very like choreographed thing. Like I'll put my glasses on and my cup of water and <laughs> like pages flying. What is your process like? It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, ha- I'm sorry to say it's very, it's pretty haphazard. Okay. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, but I sort of like to think that all writing counts. So, you know, I write to my students, I write letters, I correspond with friends. You know, other there are not though there are plenty of people that would disagree with this that would oh, say I no see. you have to sort of carve out somewhere between a half an hour and 2 hours a day for your own work and you put your butt in the chair and you don't get up until you've done your own work. My process is not like that. I'm I um when I'm excited by a a project, I can sort of work from morning till night. Um, there are days that go by where I'm not excited about a project uh, and I torture myself. Um, there are, you know, there are times when the morning is best for me and there are times when, you know, my husband says, are you coming to bed? And I say, no, I'm writing. <laughs> so interesting. What was it like for your kids to be growing up while you're on like ER? Um, and, but also like writing as well? Well, I think my kids, um, are lar- very supportive and loving and largely unimpressed. Oh, really? You know, and I mean, first of all, because they were growing up in that world, they knew a lot of people who were at, who were on television and in movies. Uh, you know, we have lots of interesting friends. Um, they so know, it wasn't abnormal. No, for them. they know lots of people who write books and oh. you know tons of books. I guess that's a side know. effect from living in LA. Yeah, I would say <laughs> if, if anything, my kids are just incredibly practical people. Okay, and you know, they're they're chances are they're not going to approach their lives in quite as reckless a way as we have, um, <laughs> which is good. This is good. This is a good thing. They're they're lovely people. Okay, were they f- happy with the way they were represented in the book? You know. <laughs> Neither of them has read the book yet. Okay. I don't think. They've read parts of it. They've both read parts of it. I think they're okay with it. They don't they don't want me to write about them anymore. And oh, I really? completely Yeah, I mean, you know, they're grown-ups now. They're 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 in their 20s. Uh they have private lives. They have personal, you know, they have personal they have relationships. They and I don't oh, know everything funny. about them anymore, you know? So I have to be careful now. I have to be 
mindful of of their privacy. Oh, wow. Because I kind of got the impression that you remembered more details about their life than your own. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And and then okay. that's a question. That's such a good, a good, that, that you, that's such a wonderful remark to make because the fact of the matter is that there I am taking ownership of their lives as if they belong to me. And that's what you have to be careful of when people get yeah. old enough to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, you don't know me as well as you think you do. And it's one thing if your parents say that to you, it's like, well, too bad. Of course. But when your children say it, you want them to continue to like you. <laughs> I guess so. Was your mom okay with the representation? It, I, You didn't try to make it seem like your relationship is not complicated, but you also made it very clear that, like, she's a massive figure in your life that you love. Was she... Did she... Was it an object parade? <laughs> no, was she like, did she, did she object? object? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I- I'm glad you said that. Did you, you, um, you did feel like, like it was a loving? Absolutely. Good. But good. it also, I, it hurt me some of the things she said to you. Oh, and I'm sure some of the things I said to her hurt, you know, were also hurtful. I mean, so my mother, I think she is okay with the book. Um, and, I think she, you know, I, when I sent her the book, I sent her a long letter uh, explaining, you know, where the good parts are. <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> no, I, th- I think she is okay with it. I think she, um, she feel, I think she feels that it's fair and okay. accurate. And I think there are places where she's, you know, her memory is different from mine. And that's the thing about memory. Memory is subjective. You know, of course. It's, it's a memory is, Memory is an act of imagination in a lot of ways, you know. So, um, so she's happy to know that like this was your truth. Yes, yeah, and I think she loves a lot of it. I don't know what she doesn't love yet. Um, she sure. hasn't, you know. She, I know that there are things that she thinks I have represented um, in a skewed way, like the story about the green earrings. Of course, she doesn't remember that story the way I remember it. But it, but the things that she wrestles with aren't um she doesn't wrestle with whether or not she said certain things to me she wrestles more with the way events unfolded you know she'll get it's more about the details you know oh, it would, really? she would be more likely to say no i didn't buy the earrings here i bought them there and i didn't actually lose them what happened was you know ignoring the and you'll never get them comment right that's oh, not weird. that's not the important part oh maybe that's just more healthy no, I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, my mother is a, is, she's a beautiful, brilliant, astonishing woman. And she, and what you said is true. You know, she is a huge influence in my life and continues to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know? No, yeah, I got that. I thought it was great. Good. Oh, good. <laughs> um, so tell me less more about like reading in books. What books do you read? Oh, gosh. Well, I just finished a book by Richard Russo called Bridge of Size that I loved. Um, but, and what's on my desk right now? Um, I, you know, I'm an editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books. So there's just that. piles of, of nonfiction and creative nonfiction. Um, and I read a ton of student work, of course. Um, but my go-to people that, yeah. you know, I love William Maxwell. Um, I love, uh, Joan Didion. I love Patricia Hampel. Um, I, I love stories. So I, I read lots of short stories. Um, lots of fiction. I read plays. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's important, particularly for a nonfiction writer to read 
for everybody, but to, for writers, it's important to read widely. You don't want to get stuck in a in a genre. You know. And you know what reading, I read? The, yeah. Have you read? You know what I read this year that I really recommend is a a book called uh, A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Do you know that book? I've never heard of it. Oh, it is a fantastic book, and it just came. She was up for a Los Angeles Times Book Award. Okay. I think she won it. She won it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book, a novel that's written in two voices about time and memory and all the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. This kind of thing appeals to me. What was the title? A Tale for the Time Being. Wow. Okay. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, you should. I mean, it's it's very beautiful. It's uh, it's told, it's the story of a, of a woman in the Pacific Northwest who's trying to write and she comes on a, she wants to be a writer and she's perhaps blocked. Um, and it's a little bit meta that way because her name is Ruth and the author's name is Ruth. Okay. And she stumbles on a diary on the beach that's washed up in the wake of the tsunami. And it, the diary belongs to a Japanese girl who's trying to decide whether or not she wants to be on the planet anymore. Wow. So there, and it's the way about the way their lives sort of intersect. It's really interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And before we go, what is next for you coming up? Coming up, and more, any more books, any more acting? What can you um, tell us? The next thing I'm going to do is go off and teach in Vermont. I teach in the Bennington Writing Seminars. Oh, great! And then after I teach in Vermont, this is pretty exciting. Then I'm going to go and teach for a month in Paris. Wow! In something called the in a program called the Paris Writing Workshop, and I have this feeling I I'm really interested in the relationship between fine arts and writing. And I have this feeling that I'm going to be, you know, with my notebook in lots of museums while I'm there. Okay. And sort of taking in that culture and that city and the art in that city. I guess that's one of the perks of being an empty nester now. You yeah. can travel around the yeah. country. <laughs> it's so, well, you know, when the, the when I'm asked, when I'm invited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, amazing. So where can we find you on social media? Anything we can plug? Oh, yes. Well, my Twitter handle is Dinah Lenny. Great. And I'm on Facebook. Great. And what else? I'm not, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm not yet um, doing anything um with Instagram or anything. It's but, okay. Um, but I noticed dinalenny.com had dinalenny.com. I have a website. It looks Absolutely. Great. Um, I'm doing an event at Aloud at the Los Angeles Public Library next week. So that's Very something cool. that people could, you Tuesday know, night? Tuesday night. Oh, I'm trying to come to that. Oh, good. I hope you do. I think it'll be fun. Three writers and, and Jim Crusoe, who's the most magnificent human being and writer as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having this me, is great. Jeff. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.